Well, happy Easter, everyone. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Seacoast. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Easter's always been a fun day for for me, even growing up before I was a, a follower of Christ. My family always celebrated, and you know, we did the Easter baskets and those scavenger hunts that I passed on to my kids. They do that scavenger hunt in the morning, and and so it's a day of that. It's a day to spend time with family, and a day when uh, your wife can pick out the clothes for you. And so, you know, it it's, it's, has a lot of good things. But the most important thing is what we'll talk about and celebrate this morning, and that is the hope that we find because of what happened on that very first Easter. So that's why we're here today. I want to extend a warm welcome to every single one of you. If you are here today and you are a wholehearted follower of Jesus, thoroughly convinced that everything we talk about today is true, we welcome you to come and to celebrate. To celebrate this event that really, and it's the one event on which all of history changes. And it depends. It's an event that actually demands a verdict. The resurrection of Jesus demands a response. See, because with the resurrection, if Jesus stayed in the tomb, his rising from the dead is a difference between Jesus just simply being another charismatic liar or being the one true Lord. Here at Seacoast, we believe that there's good reason to believe that he is the one true Lord. There's actually a logical argument for the resurrection from the earliest accounts that were written just years after his resurrection, the, the accounts that have stood the test of time, give us reason to stand firm in this belief that he rose. And so for you today, will you celebrate with us? Perhaps you're here today and you are not quite so wholehearted follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're wondering, you're questioning, you're open you're just wondering more about the resurrection. For you too, we welcome you. We are so glad you're with, you, with us. We invite you to come with your doubts, which are completely normal. Come with your questions, which are welcomed. And just come with an open heart. Be open to the possibility that there's a divine being at the beginning of all that we see and all that we know. And if there's a divine being, there is the supernatural. And if supernatural exists, miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible, then the resurrection is plausible. It's plausible to believe this. And so today we will explore that, and we're glad that you're with us exploring. We ask you to consider the implications of the resurrection today. See, we believe here that when we consider the effects of the resurrection on our lives, both for now and for eternity, that everyone in this room will want the resurrection to be true. We'll want this news to be true because it is such great news of such great hope for every single one of us. When we study the resurrection, we're reminded how much our God loves His creation, which includes you and me, and what lengths He'll go to show His love and care for all of us. So for that, today we celebrate and we explore. In just a moment, we're going to explore the scriptures and study the story of the very first Easter in Luke chapter 24. But before we do that and talk, before we get into that and talk about hope, will you join me as we pray for this morning? God, we thank you for today. I thank you for everyone who's here and I thank you that the resurrection means hope. Sometimes it becomes such a familiar story for many of us and a familiar part of our cultural rhythms that sometimes we forget to stop and consider what a great event in history this is. 
and how it actually can bring hope for us every single day. So Lord, would you speak to us now and change our hearts, transform us, God. We thank you for your love and for the resurrection. In your name, amen. As I said, the resurrection, when we study it, it's really a lot about hope. See, events of that first Easter was a time when there was no hope. And when Jesus rose from the tomb, when they found the empty tomb, hope was found. And hope is one of the most powerful human emotions that we have. Hope is a thing that keeps us, as sports fans, following our same team year after year. Is it not? At the end of the year, we see our team. We say, well, next year things will get better. We have hope. Therefore, we continue to follow our teams year after year, go to games. Because we have hope that maybe things will get better. Hope shows up in all kinds of areas of our lives. You know, psychologists have found that hope not only improves one's mental health, but they have found that hope actually will improve your physical health as well. And studies that have been conducted on prisoners of war and and even prisoners in prison, they have found that your physical health is affected by one's level of hope. For those who had hope that things would get better, that they would be reunited with family, that they would no longer be in captivity, they fared significantly better physically and sometimes outlived by far those who had no hope. Hope is one of the most powerful things we know. Think about how hope is. Hope is needed most when life seems the darkest. The darkest times are when hope shines the brightest. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that on the darkest night, you're able to see the stars. And the stars are like little glimpses. It's hope that shines. Those times in life when you can't see the hand before your face because of the darkness you feel from whatever life circumstances bring, hope is like the stars that starts to light the way. Not only see your hand, but see what lies beyond and helps you continue to move on and keep going. But that hope comes from God. And the hope comes, we find, from His resurrection. Because that is when everything changed in history. Imagine what hope was like for the Israelites in the time of Jesus when He existed. It was one of the darkest hours for their nation. They were living under the oppression of the Roman government. And before the Romans, they were under the oppression of the Greeks. And before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Syrians. Hundreds of years of captivity in their land of foreign oppressors. Hundreds of years, they watched their nation slide further and further away from being the nation who followed God and His ways. It was a dark night in their history. So now imagine when this guy named Jesus comes on the scene. He begins teaching in a way that was different than all other rabbis have ever taught. He was speaking with authority. He was taking their scriptures and and helping people really understand them. To understand the God that was behind all of these. And he was saying things like instead of this God that that results in people who just want to condemn and condemn, there was a God of grace and love and justice and mercy. Jesus turned everything around. Perhaps the most significant of of Jesus' life and teaching was how He responded to those who were on the outside. You see, no longer did you have to be perfect in your religion and, and be one of the religious elite to be included in the family of God. But Jesus made it so they said even those on the outside can be welcomed in. Not only welcomed in, but considered 
part of the family. To the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, to those who were considered unclean and unwelcome, Jesus said, it all changes. Because with God, you belong here. So his message was one of great hope. And people were getting excited about him and his words because they believed and they were clinging to their prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. Continue to speak of one day there will be a Messiah, someone who is anointed by God, who will be sent to his people to set them free. So as they learned and saw the ways of Jesus, they, the rumors spread that this could be the Messiah. As prophecy after prophecy seemed to point to his life, the euphoria began and grew and grew. And people believed that Jesus could be the Messiah. It was a ray of hope. So imagine now on that day we celebrated last week called Palm Sunday. It was a day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the crowd, it was on Passover week when they were thinking about all of the longing for the Messiah and remembering their oppression. Jesus rides into the city and we hear that the crowds gathered and began singing and shouting Hosanna, meaning God save. It was one of the songs that they would sing during the Passover. It was a reminder that the Messiah will come and set us free. So as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, their hopes of a Messiah, the hopes were high. They wanted Jesus to come and set them free from the Romans. But Jesus had other ideas, as God often does. He wanted to set them free from themselves. Jesus wanted to set them free from the endless striving to be good enough, to be religious enough to make their way to God. He wanted to set them free from the endless cycle of sin and sacrifice. So year after year, they would sacrifice an animal as a symbolic covering for all the sins in their lives. And Jesus said, you need to be set free from this endless cycle that will never do the job. They wanted a fierce warrior to come and destroy the Romans. Jesus wanted to come and destroy the patterns of the day and give them true life that came not through force, but through love. So the crowds rejoiced as He came. But by the end of the week, as they celebrated Passover, Jesus was betrayed. He was handed over to the Romans. He was crucified on a cross. And the cross was reserved for those who would rebel against the Roman Empire. It was used as a symbol of death to say, if you do as this person did, this will happen to you as well. So now consider what that would have been like if your whole nation had been expecting the Messiah. You've been longing for Him, and then you find the one who you think is truly the one to save you from the Romans, to deliver you, and then you see Him killed on a cross like a common rebel a common criminal. I saw him laid into the grave, into a tomb. Imagine the hope that was lost that day by his followers. Consider what it would have been like to follow him the last several years and watch him perform miracles, to hear him teach, to receive the hope that you, they had from the way he spoke to you. You confess to His name. We believe that You are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God sent to us. 
And you followed Him. And now here He lays in a tomb. What would that have felt like? They were confused. Probably hurt. Feeling duped. Feeling used. Maybe just feeling numb. What happened? Sort of like the call that sometimes we'll get out of nowhere with tragic news from a loved one perhaps. Maybe news of a a sickness that Perhaps news of a job lost, a relationship that ended. Your only response is this feeling of just being numb, complete darkness. That's what his followers must have felt. And in Luke chapter 24, this is where we find the followers of Jesus, his disciples. We find them scattered and in hiding. In fact, in the story we're about to read a few verses, we read a story of some of his followers who were women, but there's no mention of the men because the men weren't hiding. Because if the men were found, they'd be known to be associated with Jesus. They also would be killed as rebels. So they were afraid. Their hopes were dashed. On this third day after he'd been placed in the tomb, at this point... They thought everything had changed. And the truth is, everything had changed. But it changed for the better, and they were about to find out the best news they would ever find. See, in God's world, things often get turned around. Beauty can rise from ashes. The cross, which is a symbol of death, can be turned into a sign of hope. Resurrection becomes a symbol of God's love for us as He conquered death. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us, and we're about to find, when he rose from the dead, it tells us that we can trust his words and follow his ways. That he set, claimed to be God, if he stayed in the tomb, he would just be another person. Put him in the world of Confucius or Aesop's fables. Good wisdom, but he laid in the grave. But when he comes out of the grave, it confirms everything he said It was true. And you can trust that. So in Luke chapter 24, in verse 1, we pick it up. And we're about to see what difference the resurrection makes in our lives today. Because that's the question, is it not? Yes, even if you believe, you might say, so what does that matter for me? How do, what hope does it give me? So let's look at the hope that we find. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, this is after Sabbath, at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. You see, we have a story here of three women, followers of Jesus, who brought spices to his tomb. The reason they're bringing spices is to anoint his body and allow him to decompose properly. Their belief at this point was, well, we still loved him, but not who we thought he was, but let's at least let him die and be- or decompose with dignity. So they came to anoint his body. In verse 2, they found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And as was mentioned before, earlier this week, as we studied it, the, the, tomb was, the tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. And if you broke that seal, the punishment of death would be on you. But the seal was broken. The stone was rolled away. And the women entered in the tomb and they did not find the body of Jesus. They were perplexed about this, and behold, there was two men who suddenly stood near them. 
And they said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee. See, Jesus earlier had told them that one day I will go down to Jerusalem. I'll be handed over to the Romans. I'll be killed, but I will rise on the third day. They didn't understand it at the time. They didn't even understand it after he was crucified. But now they find his tomb and they can't see him. They can't find him. And there was some sort of appearance, an angelic appearance, who said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. The first thing that we learn, the first piece of hope because of the resurrection is there's hope beyond the grave. There's hope beyond the grave. In other words, there's hope for eternal life. Do you know mankind, one of the number one fears of all humans is the fear of death. The fear of what happens after life. The only thing that studies show that is a greater fear for people than death is public speaking. (laughs) So that means most of you would rather be dead than where I am right now. (laughs) We wonder what happens beyond the grave. I heard a story once of two men who liked baseball almost as much as I do. They loved to play baseball. They loved to watch baseball. They were talking one day and said, we really hope there's baseball in heaven. So they made a deal and they said, hey, if one of us dies before the other, find out if there's baseball in heaven and tell the other one somehow. So sure enough, the day came when one of them died. He got to heaven and he was blown away by the beauty, the mountains that were more perfect than anything he had imagined. The trees swaying in the wind was more beautiful than anything he'd seen on earth. The lakes were as crystal clear as any body of water he ever came across. And there he saw it. A beautiful sight of a perfectly maintained baseball field. Every blade of grass was meticulously cared for. The dirt was that perfect reddish-brown hue imported directly from Fenway Park in Boston. I mean, it was perfect. He found out he got to play on a team. And he was, played baseball day after day. One day he realized, I've got to go down and tell my friend. So he went to God and said, God, can I go tell my friend about baseball in heaven? So God allowed him to go. Which, by the way, this is not in the Bible. (laughs) He found his friend, and his friend saw him and was excited to see him, but the first thing he wanted to know is, tell me, is there baseball in heaven? So he said, well, I've got two pieces of news for you, good news and bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. He said, okay, the good news is there's baseball in heaven. You're going to be placed on a team. You're going to get to play day after day. You're going to love it. He said, that is great news. So what's the bad news? I said, well, the bad news is this Saturday you're the starting pitcher. <laughs> you see, when we think of eternity, we all wonder, when will our time come? What is it like? But in Jesus Christ, you don't have to look for the living among the dead. There's hope beyond the grave. There's eternal life that is promised to all of us. I don't know if there'll be baseball in heaven. I'm pretty sure there will be. I know we won't be floating on the clouds playing harps wearing white robes. The picture of heaven is one where there's no separation between God and man. That feeling we get inside, those feelings of despair and loneliness, the feelings that creep up in our lives are gone. They're erased. Because in heaven we're in the presence of our God. A French philosopher once said that we are created with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Meaning no matter what we try to do on this world and we try to always fill it without a friendship with God, there's always something missing. In heaven, the picture is that's no longer missing. There's hope beyond the grave. 
There's hope for eternity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, that Jesus is the first fruits among many when He rose from the dead. He was the first of all of mankind who will, to show us that this is what it looks like. There will be eternal life for you and for me. In John chapter 3, verse 16, I have a verse that's familiar with, for many of us on the screen here. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a promise for hope that life beyond the grave because of what Jesus Christ has done. What do we have to do to earn that eternal life? According to this, nothing. Nothing. You have to believe and trust that what Jesus did was enough. That's what you have to do. Believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough for eternal life for you. There's no amount of prayers that you need to pray. There's not a certain number of doors on which you need to knock. There's not a certain amount of sins that you need to give up. None of that. Not a certain amount of verses you need to memorize to earn eternal life. Believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me is enough. That's it. Is that fair? Of course not. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. One of the reasons I believe in Christianity is because it's ridiculous. This is not man-made. As we learned a couple weeks ago when our young adults pastor was teaching here, he said it's not a ladder-based religion where you have to climb and climb and climb your way to God, but rather a cross-based relationship where Jesus stands in the, in the gap between an imper- imperfect people and a perfect God. And there is nothing we can do to bridge that gap, but Jesus on the cross reaches across and makes it possible for you and for me. There's hope beyond the grave. Because Jesus came out of the tomb, it proved that His sacrifice was enough. If He stayed in the tomb, He's just a good man who died. Because He rose, it proved that He was God and that's the only sacrifice that was good enough for you and for me. So there's hope beyond the grave. Now there's other piece of hope for us and that there's hope for today because of the resurrection. Because He rose, we can trust His words and His ways. We can trust when Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We can trust that 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 is true because Jesus said it's true. We can trust that the life that He gives us is secure. And now we can have freedom for today. We have freedom from our sins. Freedom from the things that consume us. In our story here in Luke chapter 24, the women went back to the disciples and told them all about what they had heard. And in verse 11, when she, they shared with the other disciples, it said, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. They came back and said, you will not believe this. Jesus is not in the tomb and we think he rose from the dead. And they're thinking, that's crazy. No. But one of the disciples had a different response. Look in verse 12. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. You see, who do you think the crucifixion of Jesus affected more than Peter? Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. Peter was the one that Jesus said, I will build my church on you. Peter is the one who said, Jesus, if everyone turns away, I never will. One day in Matthew 16, Jesus looked at Peter and said, I'm going to be crucified. I will die, but I'll raise on the third day. And Peter said, over my dead body, Jesus, I will never let that happen to you. 
To which Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, called him Satan himself, said you don't have the ways of man or the ways of God in your mind. But see, Peter said, I will be loyal to the end. I'm strong enough, I'm good enough. And now Jesus died. What would that feel like? Was he saying, if only I would have told him, don't go to the garden that night. If only we would have just stayed in Galilee this year. If only I would have said something. Maybe things would be different, but now he's dead. It's my fault. I failed, and I failed, and I failed. The darkest night for Peter. But when he heard Jesus isn't in the tomb, those words that Peter, Jesus said to him years before, one day I will be in the tomb, but I will rise, Peter thought, could it be? And the stars of hope began to shine, and he ran to the tomb thinking, can I be set free from this oppression I now feel, this guilt that I have, this failure in my life? He later finds out that he will be set free from that. He doesn't have to live under that. Paul later wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, those who want to follow Jesus, your sins yesterday, today, and your sins tomorrow, you do not any longer stand condemned because of what Jesus has done. You can be free from those things that consume you. You no longer have to live under those. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Brendan Manning, an author, once wrote this, understanding the good news of Jesus is people... Uh, people who understand it are people who have made peace with their flawed existence. They are aware of their lack of wholeness, their brokenness, the simple fact that they don't have it all together. While they do not excuse their sin, they are humbly aware that the sin is precisely what caused them to throw themselves at the mercy of the Father. They don't pretend to be anything but what they are, sinners saved by grace. See, in Jesus, we can experience freedom from the sins because, hey, we're all sinners but we're saved by God's grace. You don't have to make amends for everything you've done. You're free from that. Christ has given us enough. Now, you won't be perfect. We want to be on, on the path of transformation. As our friend Larry Osborne over at North Coast Church in Vista says, come as you are, flawed and all that. Come as you are, but for God's sake, don't stay that way. <laughs> we want to be people who allows God to transform us and make us more in his likeness. But that doesn't have to consume you. You have freedom from that. The songwriter Rich Mullins was speaking about his Christian friends and he said, the plumber has a drip in his spigot. The mechanic has a clink in his car. The preacher, he's thinking thoughts that are wicked. (laughs) And the lover has a lonely heart. You see, as Christians, we don't become perfect and without flaws, but we (laughs) we experience freedom from those flaws. We don't have to leave here feeling the weight of sin because of the resurrection. There's hope for that. The final thing that we experience, the hope because of the resurrection, well, there's many things, but the other thing is we can have freedom in our relationships, in our friendships. How much time do you spend seeking acceptance in your relationships? How much time do you spend thinking about what others, how they may perceive you? How much time did you spend looking in the mirror today? (laughs) Have you ever stayed up at night replaying a conversation over and over and thinking, wow, I failed. That person criticized me. And it's not even about the fact that they criticized you and you let them down. It's that you don't look perfect now. And that hurts you. It eats you up inside. 
you feel like your relationships, you're always on. Tim Keller says that for, for humans to truly experience freedom, we need to get over this comparisons. He calls it where our identity factors on the basis of difference. It's not that we're proud of having money, it's proud of having more money than others. Not that we're a good musician, we're just better than others, or at least most others. And that causes us to look around at other people and label them and call them you people or those people. See, in Christ, we're free from that need to measure up and try to be better than others or even to make sure they're not as good as us. One thing that Peter found after he found that Jesus rose from the grave, we learn later that he has a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus takes Peter aside and says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. And Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter kind of got frustrated. Lord, you know I love you. But see, Peter's life, he, he was basing his relationship on God, on his performance, and he knew he failed, and Jesus wanted him to see that he can be free from even that. Lloyd Ogilvie once said, when he's speaking of Peter, he said, Peter had built his whole relationship with Jesus on his assumed c- capacity to be adequate. That's why he took the denial of the Lord so hard. His strength, his loyalty, and his faithfulness were his self-generated assets of discipleship. Peter's fallacy was that his relationship was dependent on his consistency in producing the qualities he thought earned him the Lord's approval. See, Peter wanted to keep God's approval. And so when he failed, he thought he lost it all. We do that day after day in our own life, in our lives. Jesus said, I will give you all you need in me. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. It's you. It's yours. You can be free from the need to be looked at up here. You can be free from the need to look down on anyone else. I play basketball in the, in the Encinitas Community Center a couple times a week with a group of guys. And you would think that when we play our little 12-minute games, that it's the final game of the Final Four tournament. We strap on our knee braces and our ankle braces. I mean, we're stud athletes. <laughs> but these games are the most important game of the week. You wouldn't believe it. When we play, we want to win. Why do we want to win? Because if we win, for that moment, we're better than the other guys. And that feels good. There's a group of women who play twice a week and sometimes I'll see them play. The first time I saw them play before our games, they play for an hour and they run up and down the court playing and when one gets tired, she will get out of the game and someone else will go in her place and they, they have the jerseys on, they'll switch the jersey, hand it to the person waiting and they just do it. When you get tired, just come in, go out. They're very fair. <laughs> one time I saw this and I saw them switching teams and just playing and they don't have a clock and they, I was like, how do you know what's, what's the score? And they said, we don't keep score. <laughs> Do you know what that sounds like to a guy? <laughs> Why in the world would you play if you don't keep score? How do you know who wins? Well, nobody wins. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. A game where no one wins? <laughs> You see, I think that the picture, and I know some women are very competitive, this particular group is not. But the reason they play is for the, just the joy of playing. They love saying, great shot, good job. You know when a guy has someone else shoot a shot over them? Everyone's like, hey, nice shot, kind of like lucky. (laughs) (laughs) 
The women are a picture of the freedom that we find in our relationships and friendships because of Christ. There's no need to win. There's no need for them to lose. Because if we truly trust that God has called us His children and we have freedom from that, it's okay if you look at me and think, oh, you know, I've seen better. You know what it's like to preach a sermon? <laughs> it's awful. Because we sit here think first we feel the responsibility, but then we start thinking, well, I hope this is really good. This week I was praying with a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in the area and we were praying and he talked me through his sermon, what he's doing for Easter and I was like, I'm going to rip that off. That's awesome. (laughs) And I came back to my office and I started thinking, I've got to change this. His is so much better. And God just said, do you think you can be good enough to convince anyone of my love? Just say what you need to say. But what I found was I was oppressed. I was feeling a burden of I wanted to be as good as my friend. Instead of saying, that is so great. God's going to use you. He doesn't need me to earn approval. I can be free from that. You can be free. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up. I want to end with a quote. It's a quote we heard a couple weeks ago. If you attend Seacoast, and you you had heard this two weeks ago, but I want to end with it because I think it's appropriate. There's hope in the resurrection, hope for life today, because here's what it means. Now you can spend your life giving, not taking, because your identity is in Christ, not your possessions. Real, pure, unadulterated freedom happens when the resources of the gospel smash any sense of need to secure for myself anything beyond what Christ has already secured for me. See, on that first Easter, it was no longer hope that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans. It was hope realized that God had come and overthrown everything that holds us captive. The resurrection gives us eternal life. The resurrection gives us freedom today to live before God. No condemnation for your sins. No need to impress. No need to put anyone else down. You have freedom to be the child of God that God has made you into. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is who he says he is. And that's the greatest news you and I could ever hear, ever. Let's all bow our heads and pray. And I want to just for a moment speak to those of you maybe who are here this morning who have never taken that step to say, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for me. And this morning you want hope for life beyond the grave. If that's you this morning, and you feel that sense inside that you want that hope for life beyond the grave, I want you just to kind of check inside. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for you. But that can be yours by simply confessing that Jesus is enough. Perhaps you're here today and you believe that Jesus gives you hope beyond the grave, but you feel the weight of your sin. You feel the weight of your past. You feel the weight of your present future. You feel the weight of the need to measure up and you don't trust that what Jesus has done for you is enough to secure your identity. And you feel that weight and this morning you're saying, I want to be set free from that. Would you just kind of check in your heart and in a moment we'll pray for you. Lord God, in this place right now, we ask that you would move and you'd transform us.
God, we believe that your life means hope, that there's power because of your resurrection to resurrect and change our lives today. So would you change us, God? Would you transform us? And for those who are wondering if you are real, Lord, would you speak to them now and give them courage to follow? And those who need to be set free from the oppression in their own lives, would you set them free? Now let me ask all of you to stand where you are. Everyone here in this place, let's stand where you are we end our time in prayer. And I simply, we're going to go into a couple more songs. And as we end with these songs, let me ask you this. If this morning you were one of those two people who said, I want to be set free and experience eternal life. Or if you said, I just need freedom from my daily life. Will someone pray for me? We're going to invite you as the music plays to make your way over to the cross over here. There's nothing special about this cross. It's just a symbol. But we have people who want to pray for you. And I know if you walk over there, someone might see you. But you are free from the need to worry about it, anyone looking at you. Don't let God, don't hold that down when there's people who want to help you in your journey this morning. So as the music plays at any time during the next two songs, feel free to come over and we'd love to pray with you this morning.